I'd ask you to pray for me this morning. I tell you, my allergies today are just terrible, and Cindy's dealing with them. And so, pray for me as I can preach this morning. Here in chapter 8, as we continue to look at the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the first letter that he wrote to them, and the first issue dealt with in this new chapter may seem remote to us here in the West, in the church in the West, but for many in the world today, in other parts of the world, uh, it's, it's uh, very urgent today as it was in first, in first century Corinth. And although Paul's uh, focus will change from marriage and singleness to idolatrous sacrifices. These are both matters in which the proper exercise of Christian freedom is valid. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And we as believers in Christ, those who are true believers, we have a freedom in Christ that the lost don't have. Okay? But sometimes that freedom... Cindy, would you please get me some tissue or something? I got a faucet going on up here. And Paul, here in this chapter, he continues with the issue of Christian freedom, the aspects of Christian freedom. The Corinthians treasured knowledge. Knowledge is good. Paul says, look, look at me at the first three verses of chapter 8. Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So even though the Corinthians, they treasured knowledge and they said, Paul says, if you look down into verse 4, he says, we know that an idol has no existence. So what was going on was this. The believers there in Corinth had come out of a pagan society. As I said, Corinth was a very bad place. It was like Las Vegas and New Orleans all wrapped into one. I mean, there was not a sinful vice you couldn't find in the city of Corinth. And many of these believers had come out of Corinth, out of this. And part of that involved them going to the temple, offering food to idols to worship these idols. And Paul says there in verse 4, he says, look, we know that an idol has no real existence. We know these idols don't really even exist. They're just a figment. They're just a little statue. That's all they are. But Paul doesn't deny this. But Paul's point is not to dispute what the Corinthians know about idols, but to make them aware of how they're using that knowledge. All right? Listen, knowledge, as I said, Paul is not saying that knowledge is not good. But the real issue here is he says there in verse 1 that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And by introducing the idea of love into the discussion, Paul has dramatically shifted the focus. And we're going to see... All the way through the rest of Paul's letter here, and especially when we get to chapter 13, where Paul is, is introducing love into this, and, and 
one of the things that Paul is strictly trying to do is this, is that you and I, who are believers, must understand, yes, we have a freedom in Christ, but we live by the law of love. We live by the law of love, not the kind of love that the world talks about. It's a completely different kind of love that the Bible talks about. Biblical love involves sacrifice and, and such things as this, as we will see as we go along here. So it's commonplace to say that knowledge is power. You ever heard that? Knowledge is power. That's a worldly truism. Okay? That's a worldly truism. It's not a spiritual thing. Knowledge alone simply inflates the one who possesses it. Uh, he can be set apart from those who don't know. And a lot of times when you do that, when you have someone who has a head full of knowledge and they're around people that don't have a head full of knowledge, they begin to think of themselves as being superior. And Paul here is guarding against that. Listen, I have a library just full of, of theological books. I love to read the theological uh, theology. I read the Puritans. I read the Reformers. I want as much knowledge of this as I can get. But if my purpose is just to fill my head with knowledge, I'm wasting my time. It's not going to do me any good. It may fill my head up, but that's all it's going to do. When I study, when I begin to, to prepare a sermon or a Bible study, or I sit at home and do my personal study, if my, if my sole focus is just simply to see how much I can know, how much more I can know than you know, then, then it's, it's not done from love. But if it's done with the, with the attitude of, you know, I want to learn as much as I can so that they can learn it, so that they can know it. You know, I told you when I came here as your pastor, my, my main goal here is to see you grow and mature in the faith. I want to see you grow. I want to see you closer to Christ today than you were yesterday through the preaching and teaching of his word. So, but the Corinthians were not doing that. They, they, were, had, they had all this knowledge but their attitude was, we know more than you, so we're better than you. You need to listen to us. And Paul is, is uh, telling them that they need to guard against this. Uh, the knowledgeable, knowledgeable person becomes increasingly puffed up or arrogant. He becomes increasingly remote and superior and loveless and loveless. Real Christian, Christ, real Christ-likeness is seen in that word, love. I mean, don't we see that? For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Paul tells us in Romans that God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. First John, John says, God is love. So love is, is the essence of Christianity. It's a full heart, not a full head. Nothing wrong with having a full head, but it must lead to having a full heart. Now, Paul, and as I said, Paul is not being uh, anti-intellectual. He's not putting down knowledge. Uh, we do require knowledge because God has revealed himself to us and what his divine will is right here in his word. God has revealed that to us, and it takes knowledge to learn that. But we don't read the Bible. You don't study the Bible. You don't meditate on the Bible for the simple fact of knowing about God. 
You must read, meditate, and study the Word of God to know God. You see the difference? Not of knowing about Him, but knowing Him, to search for Him. I'll never forget when I was a young uh, Christian, and this older man in the church that I was going to at the time, he, he asked me, he said, Now, Bobby, he said, are you, are you reading your Bible every day? I said, Well, I'm trying. <laughs> And he said, well, what's the problem? Why, why, why? You have to discipline yourself to do this. And I said, I understand that. And he said, have you, have you read any from the Old Testament? I said, yeah, that's the problem. I said, I don't understand anything I'm reading in the Old Testament. It makes no sense whatsoever. And he said, you want me to tell you the key to understanding the Old Testament? And I said, please. And he said, it's very simple. He said, when you sit down, whether you're reading in Genesis or Leviticus or the Psalms or the Proverbs or the prophets, find Jesus and it'll all make sense. You know what I found? That that is absolutely true. Find Jesus. And so knowledge is a good thing. We must have knowledge of God. Uh, and, and, you know, in any sphere of life, the really knowledgeable person knows one thing above all else, how little he really knows. And how much more does that apply to us when it comes to our knowledge of who God is and knowing God in a very personal way? We can only come to love God because he took the initiative in knowing us and bringing us into a saving relationship with himself. We love him, John says, because he first loved us. Uh, earlier in this letter, Paul's asking the Corinthians, he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, he said, why do you act like you didn't receive it? And his point is, if we have knowledge, we only, and especially knowledge of God and knowledge of who God is and what God is like, we only have that knowledge because God gave it to us. And so there's, that, that takes away any kind of arrogance that would come to this. You know, by way of application, we need to remind ourselves, <coughs> I'm sorry, that the, the model of a New Testament church is not found in a lecture room. It's found in a worship service. It's found in a worship service. Teaching is not an end in itself. Its purpose is to lead us to a deeper knowledge of God and to a deeper relationship with God. The reason I stand up here every Sunday to preach, it's not because I like the sound of my voice, because I tell you, I can't stand to hear myself. It's not because I like you looking at me because I'm naturally an introverted, shy person and I don't like people looking at me. I do this because I want to see you grow closer to God. I want to see you become more Christ-like every day in your life. And that's the purpose. Teaching is not an end in itself. Its purpose is to lead you to a deeper knowledge of God. If a head full of knowledge is not grounded by a heart full of love, all you have is a swollen head. Now, Paul's going to give us an example here in a minute and show us how the Corinthians were doing this, how the Corinthians had accumulated all this knowledge, but they didn't have a heart full of love. It was all about what they knew and not about what they felt. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. 
For although they may, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom uh, are all things and through whom we exist. Now let me clarify something Paul's saying here so you don't misunderstand. There in verse 5, when Paul says, for although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and there are many gods and many lords, Paul's not saying that there's other gods besides the one true God. He's saying that from the perspective of the Corinthians and the, 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 the culture they lived in, and we see the same today, there are gods everywhere, but they're false gods. They're not real gods. There's only one true God, Paul says. And so here, uh, everyone who knows the true and living God knows that idols have no real existence. But don't miss the application of how we are to live. Christians live for the Father through the Son. Listen, without the Trinitarian work of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you and I wouldn't be saved. Without the Trinitarian work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you and I wouldn't stay saved. Without the Trinitarian work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you and I would never go beyond this life into a life of, uh, of peace with Jesus Christ in heaven. It would never happen. So we must understand we live for the Father through the Son. And all this means uh, that the way in which the Corinthians were to deal with the problem of idolatrous sacrifices was for their lives to be patterned after the love of Christ. I mean, isn't that what we're here for? Isn't that our ultimate goal in life, to be conformed to the image of his son? To be like Christ? And Paul says that the Corinthians, with all their knowledge, they were forgetting that they are to pattern their lives after the love of Christ. To deduce the fact, for, for them to say, you know what, a, an idol has no real existence, and that's correct. But to take it further... And, and, and claim that going to the pagan temples and eating food offered to idols is completely harmless. And Paul said it's dangerous to tell them that. And he's going to tell us why that is. You know, we haven't got to it yet, but I want to read it. Because I believe that here in chapter 8, that verse uh, 9 is the key to this entire chapter. Look at verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. How often I have, how often I have been guilty of placing a stumbling block in, the, in someone else's path. Just simply because I said, you know what, I'm a Christian and I have the freedom to do what I want to do and I have the right to do this. And if you have a problem with that, that's your problem. And Paul says, no, it's your problem. Not theirs. Don't become a stumbling block. This is the key to this entire chapter right here. Uh, for a Christian to assert that their freedom must be exercised at all costs, irrespective of its effect on others, is to exalt knowledge above God. Now, I can give you some examples. <clears throat> is it wrong to drink? Is it wrong to smoke? Is it wrong to dance? You know, I, I love classic country music, you know, real country music. And, you know, not too long ago, I was playing a song. Cindy came in there, and we, we did two-step around out there. In my, I shouldn't have probably told you all that. Cause. But here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, 
Is there anything wrong with that? No. Paul's not saying that these things are bad. He said, but you can take that which is good and, and, and which you have the freedom to do, but you can make it bad when it offends somebody else, a weaker brother. And this is what he's guarding against right here. Uh, th this is not the way of love, so it cannot be the way of Christ. It is to be, it is to such practical concerns that Paul now turns in the remainder of this chapter. The exercise of our freedom. Paul presents the case of a fellow Christian whose conscience is weak. And that love rather than knowledge is the criteria for Christian behavior. Do we not see this exhibited to us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus came to this world, God in the flesh. And Paul tells us that he laid aside his glory. Jesus stood there, God in the flesh. I keep saying that because I don't think we fully grasp that. God in the flesh. And when they came to arrest him, he could have called 10,000 legion of angels. They were at his beck and call. You know why? Because he's their creator and their Lord. But he didn't do that. When they took him and he stood before Pilate, or, or I'm sorry, before the high priest, and the high priest said, are you the Christ? And he says, you said it. And a man came over and slapped him, said, you don't talk to the high priest. Can you think about this? A man walked over and slapped God in the face, literally. And you know what Jesus did? Nothing. They took him, they stripped his clothes off of him. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him with rods. They beat him with a cat of nine tails and just completely ripped his back apart. And Jesus did nothing. They took him and they laid him on the ground on the top of a cross beam and they nailed his hands and his feet and they raised him up. And for six hours he hung on a cross. Probably the most cruel form of execution ever devised by man could take up to hours. It could sometimes take up to days before they would die. And you know what he did? He said, Father, forgive them. You know why Jesus did that? Do you know why they let him, he let himself be arrested? Do you know why he didn't respond when he was slapped? Do you know why he didn't take that crown of thorns off? You know, when, when they blindfolded him and they would slap him and said, Tell us, prophet, who, who slapped you? Well, I promise you he knew, but he didn't do anything. And Paul's point here in Corinth is, you remember one thing that he has talked about throughout this entire letter is this right here. What the Corinthians had done was they had moved away from the central message of the gospel. The message of Christ crucified. And when you move away from that, you'll go in all different directions because there's one thing. The reason that Jesus allowed all these things to happen to him is because he says, you know, if I don't, Bobby's going to spend eternity in hell.
Cindy's going to spend eternity in hell. And if you're truly saved, he called your name and said, if I don't do this, they're going to spend eternity in hell. And I love them. They belong to me. And so I'm going to do whatever I have to do. And this was the way of Christ. And Paul says, look, you have a freedom in Christ. Yes, you do. But when you use that freedom in a selfish way, you're sowing self-love and not Christ-like love. And to err in this area may have devastating consequences of destroying a brother for whom Christ died. And by sinning against that brother, sinning against Christ and his church, his body. All right, look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But take care of this right of your take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? For his conscience, if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. So Paul sets an example. Uh, you know, there there are degrees of knowing. And, you know, a young convert doesn't know as much as a, a, an, an older convert. You know, those who are more mature in the faith may have more knowledge of God. They may know uh, how to better exercise their Christian freedoms than a young convert does. And this is where Paul here is talking about here. Uh, in verse 7, Paul puts his readers into the shoes of this person. And such a person was uh, that, that had come in from outside Corinth that was... Uh, had spent most of their lives going to the, uh, to the, to the temples and, and offering food to these false idols. But when they got saved and they come into the church, <coughs> they cannot separate the idols from the food. I'll give you an example. You know, I used to be a house painter. And I remember one time... I hadn't been a Christian very long, but there was another young man that worked with us who was also a young Christian. And there was a man that we worked for, and he was a very mature Christian man. And this very mature Christian man had, back in the 50s and 60s, had been part of Ray Price's band. Everybody knows who Ray Price is, right? Okay. And, and then he got saved, and he got out of that, but he still loved listening to that music. And so we're at work one day, and we got a radio going, and, and he's, he's playing his country music. And this younger guy, he says, he says, look, i got to ask you a question. He said, does it not bother you to listen to that kind of music? And the old man said, well, no, not really. I mean, he said, should it? Now, the younger Christian had come out of a life of drinking and honky-tonks and all that. Okay, now you get in the picture here? He associated that music with his former life. And he told the old man, he said, you know, I'm listening to this, and he said, it sure is making me want to drink. He said, I, I wish I'm ready to go somewhere and find me a dance hall so I can dance. And I'll never forget that old man walked over there, and he turned that radio off, and he said, son, he said, you have my word. You will never hear that music played on this job ever again. 
And I didn't understand that at the time. I do now. But you see, there was nothing wrong with that music. And he had every right to listen to that music. But for his weaker brother, he sacrificed it, his freedom for his conscience. You understand that? See, here's what Paul's getting at. This is what Paul's talking about. These, uh, the, the, This person here, they were unable to separate the food from the idol to which it was offered. And if such persons are coerced or encouraged uh, to eat meat offered to idols, then their conscience would convict them. You see, that old man could have looked at that young man and said, you know what, son? If you feel like going out and drinking a beer and doing that, he said, go ahead. It's no big deal. You're free in Christ. But you see, that weaker brother, his conscience would have been convicted by that. And he would have said, well, wait a minute. If I can do all of this now, why couldn't I do it before? And you see, it gets all mixed up. And so Paul here is saying, look, we need to understand that, that, that a weaker brother uh, is someone that we need to be concerned about. And Paul's point is that no Christian should dare compromise another Christian's conscience. The particular, the, the particular issue about food is trivial, but the state of a Christian conscience is vital to this. It is not trivial. And the possibility is more clearly spelled out there in verse 9. You know, when he talks about uh, being a stumbling block, where we're told that the exercise of God's good gift of freedom may be carried through to such a way that it becomes a stumbling block to a weaker brother. Now... Listen, Paul, he, he's acknowledging the fact that there are, there are weak Christians and there are strong Christians, okay? And he's not saying, I want to tell you something, folks. God loves that weak Christian just as much as he loves that strong Christian. He belongs to Christ just as much as they both belong to Christ just as much. But what Paul, Paul could have said, you know what? You need to, to, to set that weak Christian down. You need to straighten him out of what's going on. That's not what he said. Paul said, remember, he's weak, and he needs help. And you as a strong Christian should be helping him rather than becoming a stumbling block. And Paul's primary concern is with his brother's spiritual well-being, not his own personal freedom. And some of Paul's readers, you know, they, they uh, might have replied that, that this was all the weaker Christian's problem. You know, well, if you have a problem with that music, that's your problem. If you have a problem with me dancing, well, that's your problem. And Paul says, look, that's true, but that's not love. That's not love. You know, is there any of you here, and I know there are, that have children, that raise children? I want to tell you something. If you are a parent and you have raised children... We have four grown children and nine grandkids. But our children specifically. Did you make any sacrifices for them when they were growing up? Did you? Because, see, that's what love does. That's what love does. It makes sacrifices. I'll give you an example. And I've used this before, and I think it's a wonderful example. <clears throat> Do you love me? I hope so. If I'm hungry, would you feed me? Yeah. Well, did you know that that's not necessarily love? That's just compassion. 
But let me ask you a question. If I was hungry, would you feed me if it meant you had to do without? That's love. That's love. When you give even though you may have to do without. And this is what Paul said. Is this not the example that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ? Who was the sinless Son of God who died on a cross that we deserved? And Jesus went to that cross so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus suffered the full wrath of Almighty God for sin in our behalf. He sacrificed. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God. He is our substitute. And so Paul here, to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, do not despise a weaker brother. To despise someone that is valuable to God and is to oppose the values of Christ and his purposes and, and it is thereby not only a sin against your brother, but a sin against Christ himself. Listen, I want to tell you something. When you have a true believer in Christ, do you know, did you know this? I'm going to tell you this and this may surprise you, but I want to tell you, I can back it up with the Bible. Did you know that you, that if you are a true believer in Christ, if you have been called of the elect of God, you are loved by Christ as if you are the only person in the universe? Did you know that? God loves me like there's nobody else in the world. He loves you like there's nobody else in the world. You know what the church is called in the Bible? It's called the bride of Christ. Okay? Now, let's go back to what Paul's talking about, offending a weaker brother. You know what I'm going to do if somebody offends my bride? What do you think Christ is going to do when somebody offends his? And this is where Paul, he's saying, look, it's dangerous to do this. And in verse 13, uh, well, look, look at verses 11 through 13. Paul says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul uses himself as an example. Since it's love and not knowledge is Paul's governing principle, he is prepared to, to, to uh, surrender his freedom rather than exercise it in a way that harms his brother. It all comes down to this. It's love. Now listen, Paul says something there in verse 13. When I read that verse and I started studying this message, I, and, and I had a thought come to mind, and I know y'all are going to laugh at this, but I want to tell you, you know what Paul's saying right there? He said, if it offends somebody that I eat Whataburger, I'm never eating Whataburger again. Now I know that doesn't offend any of you here, so don't even start that. I love Whataburger. But that's what Paul's saying. Paul said, is there anything wrong with Whataburger? No, it's the greatest hamburger God ever created. But Paul says, you know what? If it offends a weaker brother that I eat it so much, he says that I'm never going to eat it again. Because they mean more to me than that does. I'll tell you, that's hard to take. Whether it's Whataburger or whatever it is. 
But love must be the guiding principle where we are willing to surrender our freedoms rather than harm another believer. And here we see the great paradox of the Christian faith. In God's kingdom, the way up is the way down. The route to self-fulfillment is giving yourself away. Again, is that not what Jesus did? Did he not give of himself? He didn't give a little bit of himself. He gave it all. And there on that cross, he died. We still find it hard to believe that in the weakness of Christ crucified, we see the power of God uniquely exhibited. That today, I stand here saved, redeemed, a child of the living God. Because one time, the God-man hung on a cross. And the world looks at that and says, that's ridiculous. Paul talks about that in Romans. He says, look, the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of the cross. Whoever would think that a man who died on a cross could save all these people? God said, I'll show you how. And sometimes it's hard for us to believe that. <coughs> you know, we, we accept it readily enough as a doctrinal position. And it becomes part of knowledge. But to live a Christ-like lifestyle is much more challenging. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That's what Paul's talking about here. When you become a child of God, when you become a saved man or woman, you become a slave of Jesus Christ. And for me to stand in the face of God and say, look, I have a right to do this or I have a right to that, is for me to not understand the concept of being a slave. And we need to understand that the crucified life is the only life for a believer. We are called. If you have been called to, be a, to, to, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, I want to tell you something. You have been called to die, to surrender everything. You know, some people say, you know, if you follow Christ, it's going to cost you something. No, it won't. It's not going to cost you something. It's going to cost you everything. Everything. And today in our culture, you know, I, I, I'm a child of the, or a teenager of the 70s. You know, greatest generation that ever lived. Greatest music, greatest cars, all that good stuff. But you know, people call it the me generation. And they're right. It became all about me. It's what I like. It's what I want. And we, we haven't gotten away from that. And even in the church today, we, we sometimes forget that our salvation is not about us. God didn't look at me and say, oh, what a good little man. I'm going to save him and I'm going to give him everything he ever wants. That's not salvation. Salvation is when God said, hey, he's dead and I'm going to give him life. And then he's going to give me everything he's got. 
And that's what it means to be the Christ crucified. And when you have that kind of mentality, when you take up your cross, when you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ, then it becomes that I'm motivated by love. That I stand and I preach because I love God. I obey God's command to love my wife as Christ loved the church because I love God. It's always, it, 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 it all must come back to love. And it means that our choices are governed by the good of others and that our decisions are made on the basis of their spiritual well-being. You know, in another book, Paul says, and you know, it's hard to take two things Paul said. He said, always think of others as being better than yourselves. Now, don't we all do that anyway? No, we don't. But Paul says that's the Christ-like attitude. And in another place, he says, always look on the things of others before your own. In other words, always put somebody else first. And you step back and you're second. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, this weaker brother, he says, yes, you have the freedom to do this. You have the freedom to eat that food because idols are nothing. He said, but that's not the point. The point is you're offending a weaker brother. That's the point. And if you love him, you're not going to want to do that. You're going to be willing to sacrifice and surrender your freedoms in order to uh, the well-being of another believer. And Jesus calls us to a radical discipleship, which, is, which denies itself, picks up his cross to follow him, not out of duty, but out of love. And seriously, how can we do it any other way? Because you see, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespass and sins. You know what the word dead means? Yeah, it means dead. You know, Jesus raised three people from the dead that we know of. One had been dead a few hours. One was dead a few days on his way to the grave, and one was already in the grave four days. Now, do you know which one of them was most dead? They were all just as dead because dead is dead. Okay? So now that we have understand that, Paul says that we were dead in our trespass and sins. And then we have, Paul used, two of the greatest words you will ever find in the Bible. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive. Do you know why I'm saved? It's because God chose me and he said, there's nothing he can do. You know, what can a dead man do? Nothing. What can a dead man respond to? Nothing. I'm alive spiritually today because God said, let there be light in my heart. He took all my sin and in an instant it was gone. It's gone. He said, I will throw it as far as the east is from the west. Do you know how far that is? That's a long way. Do you know if you go east, do you know how far, how long you'll have to go east, east before you finally go west? I mean, do you know how far you'll go east before you go a different direction? Never. You will always go east. Now, you can go south and eventually go north. You can go north and eventually go south. But if you go east or you go west, you will always go that direction. Do you understand God's point that he's making there? 
He said, I have thrown it into the depths of the sea and put up a no fishing sign. This is what God has done for us. You know why we, you know why he did that? Because God is merciful. It's not because we deserved it. We deserve the deepest, darkest corner of hell that there is. Even at this very moment. Now I ask you folks, listen to me. If you were dead in your trespassing sins and God has made you alive in Christ, how could you do anything but love him? How could you think, well, I don't want to go to church this morning, but I got to because that's what we do. Rather than having the attitude of saying, I can't wait to get there and be with God's people and hear God's word and worship and sing God's praises. Because I love God. And this is Paul. This is the example that we have here. Biblical spirituality is motivated entirely by love. The Christian lives by the law of love. And love is always, listen, it's always sacrificial. Love always puts me second and someone else first. Love always says, I want you to be fulfilled. I want you to be happy. I want you to have what you want. Not me. Now, there's nothing wrong with me wanting these things. But Paul says, love, true biblical love, the kind of love that, that, that causes you to, to pick up and hold up a weaker brother for love to build up. I must be second or third or fourth or fifth or anywhere down the line because true love puts someone else and lifts them up. You know, the, the, our churches all across the country today are filled with two kind of people. And I don't mean just the lost or the saved. I have found in every church that I have ever pastored that there are two types of church members. There are the builder-uppers and there are the tear-downers. I know that ain't good grammar, but you understand what it means? There are those who lift people up in love and those who insist on their own way and their own freedoms and thereby tear others down. And Paul says that is not the way of the cross. That is not the way of the message of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that, Father, that you and your great mercy and love have chosen, Father, those whom you would give eternal life through Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, this morning that you would help us to examine ourselves, to search our own hearts, Lord, to help us to have that Christ-like attitude and a heart full of love and not just a head full of knowledge. That love may characterize who we are as individual believers and love might characterize who we are as a church. Father, so that the Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified. Lord, forgive us for our sinfulness. Forgive us for our selfishness. May we daily 
deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow Christ. And Father, I pray if there's one here, one listening that has never truly received eternal life from Christ, that, Father, this morning you might turn their hearts towards you. Father, that they might be saved, that they might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name.